Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is May 13th. The twister of 1980 left five dead and injured more than 70. More than 1,200 people were displaced from their homes. Officials estimated the tornado caused 50 million damage and destroyed over 30 homes and businesses. Many Kalamazoo, Michigan residents still remember where they were and what they were doing when the tornado hit. I certainly do, said Lynn Houghton, Regional History Collections Curator at the Western Michigan University Zong Legacy Collection Center. Houghton, then a student at Western Michigan University, traveled back to Kalamazoo with her fiancé, remembers driving west on I-94 toward Kalamazoo and noting the sky had turned a strange gray color. Once back in the city after the tornado had passed, Houghton remembers looking downtown from the top of West Ninja Hill. Her clocks had stopped at 4.13 p.m. when the electricity went out at her apartment. Others in the community may have different memories and some have a closer connection to the historic storm, Houghton said, like those who were worshipped in a church that was destroyed or who lived in a home that was damaged by the storm. The tornado struck on a Tuesday afternoon, 1980. The National Weather Service had issued a tornado watch at 2.30 p.m. At 4 p.m., a tornado touched down eight miles west of Kalamazoo's city limits in relatively open terrain in Van Buren County. After first touching down, the tornado injured 11 people and damaged or destroyed about 100 buildings. When... Less than 10 minutes later, the twister touched down north of West Main Street and Drake Road and cut a three-mile-long path through the residential area in Kalamazoo. The twister damaged more than 200 homes and three churches before continuing into the heart of downtown business district. Pinehurst Boulevard was one of the hardest-hit residential streets. At 417, the tornado destroyed monuments at Mountain Home Cemetery and collapsed nearby laundromat wall, killing a young woman. A man was killed by a falling tree when his driving his motorcycle near Bronson Park. Two more people died in Farmer's Alley when the east wall of what is today's Gilmore Brothers department store collapsed. Today, that building is now known as the Kalamazoo City Center. Next, the tornado crossed Pitcher Street and severely damaged several in, or seven industrial plants. After the tornado traveled about two more miles, one more man was killed while pumping gas at a station in Comstock Township near MVET at Memorial Highway, which is a portion of the I-94 Business Loop or King Highway. At 4.25 p.m., only 16 minutes after it touched down within the city limits, the tornado dissipated east of the city. Kalamazoo was like a bombed-out city, then-Governor William Milliken said after touring the damage with local officials. Milliken declared a state of emergency, which prompted a temporary curfew for residents and dispatched a team of 231 state police troopers to assist local law enforcement. The tornado was bad, but it could have been much worse, Houghton said. More than 320 students at St. Augustine Elementary School were sent home about an hour before the tornado destroyed the school. The tornado leveled two city blocks east of the school and took out 108 windows from the building at 151 South Rose Street, which is now known as the Comerica Building. On the Sunday after the tornado struck, the downtown area was reopened to the public for the first time, said Houghton, who worked at the, at the time at what was the Kalamazoo Public Museum. There was bumper-to-bumper traffic as motorists rushed downtown to see the damage with their own eyes. Though it took a horrible toll, the natural disaster bolstered a sense of community in Kalamazoo, Houghton said. People helped those around them. Others raised money to plant new trees in Bronson Park. 
Although there are significant differences between the tornado that cut through a city in less than 20 minutes and the current public health crisis keeping residents locked inside their homes for weeks, Houghton sees a common thread between the 1980 tornado and the 2020 coronavirus outbreak. In both cases, she said, the Kalamazoo community banded together to help one another. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, the people, businesses, and institutions of Kalamazoo are doing what they can do to weather the metaphoric storm, like through supporting emergency personnel or buying from local restaurants. That spirit is still here, says Houghton. In France, the May 1968 crisis escalates as a general strike spreads to factories and industries across the country, shutting down newspaper distribution, air transport, and two major railroads. By the end of the month, millions of workers were on strike, and France seemed to be on the brink of radical leftist revolution. After the Algerian crisis of the 1950s, France entered a period of instability of stability in the 1960s. The French Empire was abolished, the economy improved, and French President Charles de Gaulle was a popular ruler. Discontent lay just below the surface, however, especially among young students who were critical of France's outdated university system and the scarcity of employment opportunity for university graduates. Sporadic student demonstrations for education reform began in 1968, and on May 3rd, a protest at the Sorbonne, the most celebrated college of the University of Paris, was broken up by police. Several hundred students were arrested and dozens were injured. In the aftermath of the incident, courses at Sonborn were suspended and students took to the streets of the Latin Quarter, the University District of Paris, to continue their protests. On May 6, battles between police and students in the Latin Quarter led to hundreds of injuries. On the night of May 10th, students set up barricades and rioted in the Latin Quarter. Nearly 400 people were hospitalized and more than half of them police. Leftist students began calling for radical economic and political change in France and union leaders planned strikes and supported the students. In an effort to defuse the crisis by returning some the students to school, Prime Minister George Pompidou announced that the Sonborn would be reopened on May 13th. On that day, students occupied the Sonborn buildings, converting it into a commune, and striking workers and students protested in the Paris streets. During the next few days, the unrest spread through other French universities and labor strikes rolled across the country, eventually involving several million workers and paralyzing France. On the evening of May 24th, the worst fighting of the May crisis occurred in Paris. Revolutionary students temporarily seized the Bourse, a Paris stock exchange, raised a communist red flag over the building, and then tried to set it on fire. One policeman was killed in the night's violence. During the next few days, Prime Minister Pompidou negotiated with union leaders making a large number of concessions, but failed to end the strike. Radical students openly called for revolution, but lost the support of the mainstream communist and trade union leaders, who feared that they, like the Gaullist establishment, would be swept away in a revolution led by anarchists and Trotskyites. In May 30th, President de Gaulle went on radio and announced that he was dissolving the National Assembly and calling national elections. He appealed for law and order and implied that he would use military force to return order to France if necessary. Loyal Gaullists and middle-class citizens rallied around him, and the labor strikes were gradually abandoned. Student protests continued until June 12th when they were banned. Two days later, the students were evicted from the Sonborn. In the two rounds of voting on June 23rd and 30th, the Gaullists won a commanding majority in the National Assembly. In the aftermath of the May events, de Gaulle's government made a series of concessions to the protesting groups, including higher wages and improved working conditions for workers, and passed a major education reform bill intended to modernize higher education. After 11 years of rule, Charles de Gaulle resigned the presidency in 1969 and was succeeded by Pompidou. He died the next year just before his 80th birthday.
There are dates that remind us not only of things we read of in history books, but also the history we have lived. These powerful events are indelibly inscribed on the pages of our own lives. The impression left by these events are so strong that even many years later, we can remember perfectly where we are and what we are doing when the news of what happened reached us. May 13, 1981 is undoubtedly one of these dates. That day, an event considered impossible an unimaginable burst into reality, an attack against the Pope in St. Peter's Square. Forty years later, it still evokes chills when recalling that dramatic se- sequence of events, the sounds and noises that erupted on that spring afternoon. It was 5.19 p.m. when John Paul II, during his customary visit among the faithful gathered for the Wednesday general audience, took a little girl into his arms and then held her out to her parents. A few moments later, the deafening sound of a gunshot was heard, and then another. The Pope, shot in the abdomen, collapsed in the open vehicle that was taking him around the square. Frantic moments. People were stunned. At first, they did not understand and could not believe what had happened. Many of the pilgrims broke into tears. Others knelt down in prayer, some using rosaries they had brought for the Pope to bless. Some remembered that on that very day, May 13th, some 64 years earlier, Our Lady had appeared in the shepherd, children of Fatima. The Pope, known for his motto, Todos Tus Maria, was then entrusted by the people of God into the hands of the Blessed Virgin Mary. John Paul II would later confide that it was precisely to the Blessed Mother's intervention that he attributed his survival. If someone's hand had wanted to kill him, another more powerful hand deflected the bullet, saving his life. Very quickly on that afternoon of May 13th, prayers radiated rapidly in concentric circles from the Vatican and embraced the entire world. Prayer became the spontaneous response of millions of people as they learned that the Pope was struggling between life and death. Father Jorge Mario Bergoglio, S.J., the future Pope Francis, was also praying during those hours. At the time, he was reactor of the Collegio Maximo de San Jose in San Miguel province of Buenos Aires. He too was shaken by what had happened. Today, Pope Francis shared with us his own memory of that 13th of May. He was at the Apostolic Nunicature in Argentina, meeting with a nuncio archbishop and Venezuelan Father Gauld before lunch. It was then that the secretary of the Nunicature, Monsieur Claudio Mario Celi, gave him the terrible news. It was amazing that despite the emotion and moment Vatico, Vatican radio reporter was able to report live with unbroken clarity during the weekly general audience that Wednesday when forced to report an event that he would never have chosen to recount. For the first time, he said, during his large live Vatican radio broadcast, there is talk of terrorism even in the Vatican. We are talking about terrorism in a place where the message of love has always been transmitted, a message of harmony, a message of peace. That prayer of the faithful around the world was constant and it did not let up until John Paul II was out of danger. In some ways, it could be said that prayer accompanied and protected him until the end of his earthly life, especially in times of suffering, illness, culminating during his last days in the spring of 2005. The unleashing of hatred brought about by that criminal act was strong, even apocalyptic in some respects. Even stronger, however, would be the power of love and mercy that would lead to the whole subsequent journey of John Paul II's earthly life and pontificate luminously at the same time mysteriously. Four days later, this was surprisingly witnessed while reciting Regina Kelly in his room at the hospital where he is hospitalized. Pope John Paul II assured his forgiveness to the person who tried to assassinate him, calling him the brother who struck me. He actually called him his brother. It would be this common fraternity, 
unbreakable despite everything that may have happened on earth since it is inscribed in heaven. That would be the protagonist once again on another hard-to-forget date, December 27th of 1983. On that day, John Paul II visited Rome's Rabia prison. He made the visit public as someone observed at the time the Pope wished to save the life of the man who wanted to strip it from him. We met his fellow human beings and his brothers, the Pope said after meeting. Since we are all brothers and the events of our lives must confirm the fraternity that comes from the fact that God is our Father. And it is from the same fraternity that Pope Francis today shows us to be the only way forward for the future of humanity. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com Kalamazoo Tornado MLive.com France's 1968 General Strike at History.com and Pope John Paul II shot at VaticanNews.va The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana created by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.